0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Apram Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, today's discussion is an old discussion, but it's a discussion that still continues into, the, into today. The debate between, well, we'll associate it with specific groups, although we could have done this differently, but we'll call it the disagreement between the rabbis of Ashkenaz, of Germany, versus the rabbis of Lita, of Lithuania, regarding secular studies. Now to try to sum up this very big subject in in just one class, it's a little bit too much to ask, and even to touch on all the elements involved is a lot to ask for. So there's a few things that we have to lay out to begin the class, a few things we have to lay out, and kind of, let's take them off the table. This debate between um, how schools should be taught and what subjects should be taught in the schools, and not just schools, but, but whether you should be learning these things at all, this debate is, is a debate that takes on many forms, many different forms throughout the generations. One thing we're not discussing is the debate whether or not people should have the ability or the basic skills to get a job. Even though there are some people who debate that, we're not debating that. We are not suggesting, uh, we're not getting into the discussion of those people who would suggest that if everybody would just sit and study Torah all day, that magically everything would come. There is an approach like that. The Talmud tells us in Barachot that um, Rabbi, um, Rabbi Shimon said to the position of Rabbi Ishmael he said to him, if, uh, if you are busy working your fields and harvesting and planting and doing everything you need to do, Torah Matahela, what's going to happen with the Torah? Nobody's going to study Torah, everybody's going to work with the field. And instead, Rabbi Yishim Bar Yochai, because he lived on this very high level, wanted that everyone should just sit and study Torah, and the world will, will somehow provide for us. HaKadosh Baruch Hu will arrange for us to get whatever we need. To which Rabbi Ishmael said, no, the world you have to work within the world as it goes. And the Talmud ends up concluding that Rabbi Yishima Bar Yochai is a very rare person who can survive in this world where they don't have to work at all. So we're taking this discussion off the table. That's not what we're discussing. Every person has to be able to do something for a living in order to provide for themselves. And part of that is to learn how to do something properly. And for that, for basically anything, you need an education of some kind. Uh, You could say a person could spend all day flipping burgers, and there's nothing wrong with flipping burgers all day. It's just not exactly one of the best-paying jobs in the world and and you see because it comes with very little amount of training and very little amount of studying that's involved you do have to learn health and safety and and some basic things even to work in a in a, a relatively simple job like that so everything needs some knowledge and some study we're not discussing that what we're discussing is the concept of a person being educated in the realm of world knowledge and of the secular studies in terms of uh, mathematics and literature and and uh, the world's philosophies and histories and all the other um, studies which would be part of your standard education within the world we're living in the question is, is are, do you benefit from it in a spiritual way as well or and this is the other side, does it actually get in the way of your spiritual growth because of all the things that you are learning? So, to, to begin this discussion, we have to take it back to some of the sources for, for, this, um, for this question. W- one of the uh, most difficult stories in all of the Talmud is the story of someone who you all know well, we've discussed him a number of times, um, Elisha Ben Avuya. Elisha Ben Avuya was basically the only rabbi, the only prominent, learned rabbi, to leave religious observance and go off and do his own thing. Even then, when he left, it really wasn't so clear how and why he left, and he, he was... The internal struggle within him is a whole discussion to itself. And the Talmud describes all of this in great detail. His internal struggle, his his discussions about where he was. But he, he went off. And whenever you have this special case, it leads us to think about how could this happen? How does it happen that someone who knows the entire Torah, This is, he was the Rebbe of Rebbe Meir, and we know that Rebbe Meir is the basic material for what would become the Mishnah, and the Mishnah that we have is basically an expansion of the teachings that Rebbe Yudha Anasi had from Rebbe Meir, and Rebbe Meir studied from Elisha ben Avuya, and... That means that Rabbi Meir felt that it was so important, that Talmud says this, that even though Elisha ben Avuya was now known as Acher, he was no longer considered one of the sages, he was no longer welcome in the same way, still we accepted Rabbi Meir's teachings from from him. And the reason is because Acher had all this knowledge of Torah that we need. So our Torah sages are trying they're struggling to understand the, the sages in the Talmud. How could it be that Elisha Benavuya could go off that way? And what our sages concluded, according to one of the explanations, was because he was studying other studies as well. He was studying the wisdom of the Greeks, and the wisdom of the Greeks was what drew him away. He was studying Sifre Minus. He would look at other books and other things, and that's what would um, set it, put confusion into his mind. And that's why Elisha ben Avuya becomes Acher. Now, if the simple reading of this teaching in the Talmud is that it's a warning to the rabbis don't let any external knowledge influence the way that you think. Because if you if it will, it's going to lead you to go off the derech, off the path. Yet, and here's, here's um, the counter-argument, you find these other rabbis who are familiar with knowledge outside of what it says directly in the Torah. So, for example, Shmuel said, Nehir enli shvili derechieh that to me, I am as familiar with the pathways in the sky as I am with the pathways of Naharda which was the, the town in which he lived that means that he would st- go out and study the stars now we talked about, the, you know, when we learned the Rambam we talked about the idea of studying the stars but it sounds like he studied more than, than just the stars and by going outside and looking at the sky but it sounds like he also delved into the the knowledge that was available of of the stars and other areas of the knowledge of the world, and the rabbis all seemed to be versed in knowledge of of other areas and we 've discussed this before, not only that, but the rabbis were um, actually took studies in the black arts and the in the dark magic in the dark arts and and, and all kinds of uh, other things the rabbis would study it in order to have a great knowledge of it so that they could give rulings based on this knowledge so what we're left with is or what we're starting with is this seeming contradiction between the rabbis being urged to gain all this knowledge and to have all this information so that they can bring it all in and use it all to expand our knowledge of the Torah. And then we have this warning about this one rabbi who goes off because he was studying all these books that he shouldn't have been studying. So how do we resolve this contradiction? And this is is the... There are many ways of doing it, but this is really the point of what it comes down to. How do we understand what should be brought in and what should not? So, we're going to skip ahead a long time. We're going to bring this to the 19th century. The 19th century is a funny time, because the age of reason has come. It's the 1800s. The world has woken up to a certain extent. New ideas exist in the world. And there's always new ideas in the world. And, you know, today there are new ideas. But this was different. Because this was in the, the aftermath of a fundamental change in the way all of human beings see the world. In the 18th century, in the 1700s, the ideas of freedom and liberty made all of the world question even the most basic things that we all took for granted and this is this is so um, amazing about the the human condition it just human beings are just exceptionally i mean it's hard hard to know what to compare it to but but humanity is able to be so so brilliant absolutely brilliant we I, I don't know how to say it any better than this I'll just pick one example we have harnessed we have harnessed bacteria we have harnessed um, let's we have harnessed mold to turn it into medicine to help deal with infections inside the human body. We are manipulating and making use of things that are impossible for us to see with our eyes. Human beings! We took control of it and we're the same human beings who found a way to use um, nuclear power to either blow up an entire country or to power an entire country, assuming we can figure out how to do these things safely. So the human beings are amazing, and at the same time, we seem to be the dumbest species in the universe. We will listen to and buy into whatever people tell us and just accept things just blindly because that's what everyone believes. We're... If you they, they've done these studies, everyone's seen these studies, we, we, um, um, there are a number of ways that these studies have been done, but where they put ten people into a room and they show you a, a, a blue circle and they ask you what color the circle is, and after nine people say it's red, the tenth person is so embarrassed to say that it's blue, even though it's blue right in front of them, they also say it's a red circle. And that, that's the power of things like propaganda and, and other elements within society that can drag human beings away from, from truth and reality and, and, that, and convince us to believe a certain way. It, it's hard to understand how human beings can be so intelligent yet at the same time be so naive and gullible. Now, I'm not saying that everything that human beings believed in the past is a result of naivete or gullibility. On the contrary, it may be, it could be, that in many ways, some of the things that people believed in the past were, were actually more true, and maybe now humanity has developed something uh, different. Let's take an example. Let's take one, one big example related to the changes which took place in the, in the 18th century, which would then lead into the 19th century. Let's take, for example, the concept of a king, a melech. It used to be, up until a certain time, that people believed that there must be a king. God made kingdoms excuse me, in the world, and without a king you don't have a society. The king is the best form of a society, because what you have is one person who's special. Not only is this person special, but this person is divine. That means that they are a messenger of God, and therefore they get all the power in the world. And if God has all the power, then this person, who is his representative in the world, should also have all the power. Society believed this. In fact, there were some societies that were still believing this in the 20th century. When Japan um, had to um, basically admit and surrender that they had lost World War II, part of the struggle was that the emperor is supposed to be a divine being. How is it possible that under his watch that, there should be, um, a, a, they, sh- that they should lose a war, that they should lose a battle? It couldn't be. And they had to redefine exactly how they understand the nature of the king. But how did the rest of the world le- learn to let go of a monarch, of a king? They turned, again, some countries still had kings, there was still some remnant of it, you know, the, um, the, Russia still had a king until the 20th century, but the concept of a king, the way it was understood previously, changed. It all changed. What, what's strange is, it wasn't just the existence of a king and the removal of a king that changed that's uh, uh, that's not our discussion what we're discussing is that there was a shift in the way that human beings understand the way that the world exists that's what's important that the idea of individuality and the idea that i get to make my own choices about my life and that some one guy shouldn't be making the rules for everyone, and that instead it should be of the people, by the people, for the people, the people should elect someone, and those people should make decisions, and they should only continue to remain in, uh, in, their, in their roles, as long as they continue to properly represent the people. Strange idea. But it took over. And what came along with it was a sense of superiority in terms of knowledge and understanding above the previous generation, and I, I, I feel free at any point to disagree with this with this particular point, but it, it seems to be that the world was moving and shifting into that was an old way of thinking. We now have a new way of thinking. The old way of thinking is wrong. The new way of thinking is wise and smart. But then, 50 years later, there was a new way of thinking. And 50 years later, there was another way of thinking. And there's always some new way of thinking. Today, we consider the people and the way that they thought even 50 years ago. To be backward and misunderstanding and to not have followed through on all these thoughts correctly. But today, we understand it. Someone once, um, I've said this before, but someone once asked, you know, how could it be that we can look back at the, the founding fathers, for example, of the United States, and see some of the things they did, how are you supposed to respect their opinions? And my response was then, and it is now again, well, in a hundred years from now, people are going to look at you and look at all the bad ideas that you have, and they're going to wonder how they can respect any of your opinions. Okay, let's bring this back to our discussion. Along, what happen, uh, uh, along with all of this that's happening, there is an idea that grows in the world, that, in, or, that who are the people who are entitled to make decisions, who are the people who understand and know everything, those who have gathered a specific set of knowledge, those who have studied certain ideas, those who have studied certain philosophies and certain approaches, only they can have an understanding of the proper way of, of, of living. So, for example, if you believed in a world of the 16th century, you have to read Voltaire. And if you read Voltaire, you'll realize how cleverly he he represents in his books, he he represents what their life and philosophy is really like, and then when you read Voltaire, your mind will be open to the proper understanding of things. And if that's true, then everyone should be required to read everything. In no place was this more stressed than in the German intellectual societies. Germany was in the 19th century, was the center of the world, certainly of the Western world, when it came to knowledge and understanding uh, of education, advanced education, and the most forward and advanced, interesting word to use, advanced thinking at the time. And they felt like the only way humanity was going to get better, the only way that humanity was going to improve, was for all of humanity to become educated and cultured and advanced. It's a little bit ironic to be speaking of all countries in the world, speaking of Germany in this way, because we all know that if you fast forward 100 years after that, you've got the Holocaust, so, how did it go from from being the most sophisticated and advanced cultured um society in the world at its time to becoming the most monstrous um society the world had ever and hopefully will ever see it's th- it, that that's a whole um discussion to itself also but it kind of makes you question a little bit the premise of the original idea. So what was happening was that within the, um, the Jews, within the German society, were very much caught up in the storm of wanting to um, be cultured and to be advanced in the way that the German society was promoting because they believed that that would be the salvation of the Jewish people. In other words, they saw these studies, they saw these, um, this knowledge and the way of looking at the world as the way to save the Jewish people. We can become a part of society and finally be accepted and not be rejected. And, and the reason why they felt they were being rejected was because they were still backwards and living in their, in their um, ancient um, Judaic ways. And if they would only advance and become, become part of German society, they would be welcomed. And that's all they wanted was to be welcomed. Part of what they did is to even go the other direction and they shifted and changed Judaism. This was what was called the Reform Movement. Reform means to rewrite it. What they did was they rewrote it and rewrote the entire religion in a way that they felt would best fit with the society in which they were in. Now the the religious Jews in Germany had a problem because they weren't interested in giving up their Torah observance, but at the same time they realized that if they totally isolate themselves and separate themselves from society and its way of life, that they would not survive and more importantly, their children would not survive. The next generation was caught up in, in this world of, of, of a search for knowledge, for understanding. The world was at that time very curious. Very curious. Everyone wanted to understand everything and know everything. And this is the, the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. The world is advancing at a pace that was... Beyond what they could understand. People were able to travel. You won't believe this, but, but they had trains that can take you from one place to another place in a matter of hours. Now I don't know if they could at that time picture what modern air travel would look like. I mean, people already had some ideas, but, but, uh, but the world was advancing. And the religious Jews in Germany led by the great Rav of Afol Hirsch, who lived from 1808 to 1888, what he introduced was an approach called Torah im Derech Eretz. Torah im Derech Eretz means that you study Torah, Torah is the way that you live your life. But at the same time, you have Derech Eretz, Derech Eretz does not mean as it's usually interpreted um, um, to be to 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 have proper morals and ethics and behavior. But it means Derek eretz, the way of the land. You're in a country, become a part of the country in a way that allows you to best fulfill your requirements towards the Torah. So what he did was he suggested that everyone should there should be studies, secular studies. People should be studying um, science and math and the uh, social studies and the other things. For, w- for what purpose? For the purpose of knowing and understanding the world as it is. For the purpose of being able to function in a cooperative way with society at large. And so every rabbi, um, you know, after that, in the future, every rabbi who became a rabbi in the German community, I mean, he was in Frankfurt, but the entire German community, every rabbi also had to be a doctor. Uh, of some kind, you have to have your uh, doctorate in order for us to recognize you as a rabbinical figure we also need you to be able to represent us to the world and to have that world knowledge which allows you to connect with um, the communities within the society of today. If we shift our view we'll move the satellite view from Frankfurt, Germany, to, let's go to Lithuania, to Lita, and let's look at the town of Brisk, where Reb Chaim Brisker was there, uh, he, was, uh, he lived from 1853 to 1918, so basically at the same time, a little bit after Reb of And to him, this was a horrible thing. The idea of introducing into your studies, into your um, knowledge, garbage. And I'm saying garbage because that's the way it was viewed. It's garbage. Meaning, why in the world would anyone want to know what Francis Bacon had to say? Or Spinoza? Or I mean, Benjamin Franklin. Who cares what these people have to say? They have Chachma Bagoyim Tamin, that's always been a Talmudic um, um, dictum, is that um, we totally accept that there is wisdom amongst the nations of the world, but not Torah. There's no Torah amongst the Goyim. So, what do I need this knowledge for? Could you imagine if I come over to someone whose job it is to be in a, 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 a let's go with a plumber? His job is to be a plumber, and I and I give him a free ticket. It says here, here's a ticket so that you can go and study how to how to catch fish professionally. And tell you what do you want from me? I'm a plumber. What am I going to learn how to catch fish? So says. Um, The Lithuanian rabbi said your job is to study Torah it's to be a from Jew again we're not talking about the opinions who say that you shouldn't even learn a trade right they that's not what he's saying what he's saying is this education is hours and hours and weeks and months and years of your time that you could be studying Torah and gaining more knowledge of God, and coming closer to God. And instead, you're busy studying, and I'm going to use the term again, as they would refer to it, as garbage. So they said... This is exactly the same debate today in Israel, between the Haredim and the modern Orthodox, while the modern Orthodox study Torah, and integrating the society, they are members of the Knesset, they are doctors, they are professors, the Haredim object to secular uh, education. Yes, absolutely. This debate continues, and and that's... It's similar... No, so it's a similar debate. Right. This debate, absolutely, it continues even until today, And, and that's the reason why I'm phrasing it in two extremes. I'm sure everyone's noticed how we went from extreme to extreme, and and the reason is because we have to be able to look at and analyze each of them, what they're trying to say on their own, as we said in our first class, if you can't see each side's perspective, then your opinion is not really an opinion, You're because you're, you haven't seen what there is to see, so we have to phrase it, but yeah, it's, it still continues until this day, it's the same debate about what to do today, but... um. I do want to um, make um, one one small note though we have to under- some of these things are based on different ideas, so for example, being part of society or being part of let 's say the Knesset, so there might be other reasons besides for secular education why someone on that side would not want to take part in, in, in politics, which is, which is here we 're just referring to even becoming doctors and lawyers. Uh, they, They discourage it, they discourage you from going to, and even there you'll see that many of them, there are many religious doctors and many religious lawyers, but still, and I think this is what it comes down to, even those who do become doctors and lawyers, They're only studying those studies in order to allow them to get a job. They'll study everything there is to know about medicine so that they can be good doctors, but their studying of history is not because they want they appreciate the history itself. It's because you can't go to medical school unless you have a piece of paper that says that you studied these histories. So even those who do go, it's about the perspective of how you look at those studies. That's very much a part of this discussion yeah what's interesting is that you would expect that the rabbis of Lithuania would have excommunicated the rabbis in Germany and that the rabbis in Germany would have excommunicated the rabbis in Lithuania because that's what we love to do as Jews right when someone does something that we think is is radical we 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 what's the term we cancel them right that's the that's but we didn't do that. It's really interesting. They asked her, Chaim Brisker, they asked him, you know, what, what should we do about what's going on in Germany? And he said, that's what they need. This is what we need, and that's what they need. And that, that's, that's a rarity, and it, it just goes to show you um, how sometimes, even though we've said in previous classes that sometimes even the greatest of people, we, you know, we're, so, we're still human beings, every, every, all these great tzaddikim, all these great wise people, and you wonder, like, how could someone so smart and do something like this? They're still human beings. So how could it be that such great people can get into personal squabbles amongst each other, um yeah, you know it can happen. But sometimes you see from those who rise above this. This did not turn into that, and the communities were still able to get along, but you still had this essential disagreement, fundamental disagreement, about how to approach things. In in Lithuania, this got a little more complicated when the Russian government basically said that either the Vilasian yeshiva begins to teach secular studies, or they or they will be forced to close. Uh, the yeah the the Velazhin yeshiva, which was started by Rabbi Chaim Velazhin, who was a student of the Vilna Gaon, and um, whom we spoke about uh, previously. The Volashan Yeshiva was at that time, really, it's called the mother of the Yeshivas, but it was at that time the center of all Torah study in that part of the world. It was the biggest Yeshiva, and it was essentially, um, really the only major Yeshiva in the world, it was the Yeshiva. And they had a choice. They could introduce secular studies, which was what the state was requiring them to do, what the government was requiring them to do. But the rabbis were concerned that this would undermine the whole concept of the yeshiva, and so they let the yeshiva close. The yeshiva was closed rather than to introduce secular studies. You should appreciate how... The debate, when when we look at what's happening in Eretz Yisrael today, and to a certain extent in the United States as well, you can see that it's it's steeped in in a, a debate that goes back 150 years. Yes. I I hope you hear me. Can yeah. you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Um, I read about uh, Raphael Shimson Hirsch, and what I know about that, that he, as a matter of fact, that was. He didn't have any other choice. Otherwise, it was in Frankfurt. Uh, he could lose a lot of people, many, many people draw, drawn on to to um, to uh, reform, and he was so afraid. And that was his way to bring him to bring the people to his way. And it, I think. He did it because he didn't have another choice. Okay, so um, it's interesting you say that because Uh, there is a debate about Rabbi Shamshon Rafal Hirsch. There is a debate and there are those who suggest exactly what you just suggested which is that Rabbi Shamshon Rafal Hirsch also agreed that it would be better not to study secular studies but felt like this was necessary. However there are others who don't read that. They don't read the story that way. They read into the way that he wrote it and the way that he explained it that he said no. This is actually a better way of being. He felt that he felt that this was actually better. That you're a better person, and a better Jew, and a better, if you have this world knowledge as the world presents it. And this is a very important debate, because what happens when you comes to a society that no longer forces you to have secular studies? Should you continue to have the secular studies because you benefit from it, or should you stop doing it because it's no longer required? So the way that you're presenting it, obviously you're reading it from um, whoever's book you're, you're reading, felt like this was a concession. Uh, it, we had we to, we to uh, concede in order to reconcile the, the problems of the day. But not that we really want it to be that way. Okay, so um, let, let's, let's look in the other direction Let's look at it from the perspective of the, of the rabbis. What exactly, I'm talking about the Lithuanian rabbis, what exactly are they worried about? Again, we're not talking about learning basic math and, and how to read and write. We're not talking about that. I know there are people who debate it, but we're not discussing that. If you can't make a calculation of, of what, uh, of what you know, um, 10 times 5 is, then you're not fully developed as a human being. And I shouldn't use such simple math. You should certainly be able to do more complicated mathematics than that. Addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, even that is not enough. You have to have some knowledge in order to be able to function as a human being. The question is... How much how ad, how much advanced knowledge do you have of subjects that you're not necessarily going to study? Uh, I'm sorry, that subjects that you're not actually going to use in life. Yep. I, I I remember I was once uh, teaching uh, a, one of these uh, subjects, and you know, as a teacher, you get. Uh, I was teaching um, um, y- young boys, obviously, and uh, the. Uh, that's, that, those are the ones who asked this question. The question was always, when am I ever going to use this? When am I ever going to need this? Why am I studying this? So my answer was never, um, you know, well, you, know, you have to study this because the government says you have to study it. That's not a good answer. And it's not the true answer. The true answer, the real answer, is that the reason why you should know this stuff is because it will make you smarter. And that's what I said to them. I said the reason why you have to study this advanced math is because it will make you a better. It will make you better at studying the Torah. It will make you better at um, having discussions with other people, and it will make you better at studying at playing basketball. When they heard, oh, that studying this advanced math will make them better at basketball, and then they then they were happy to study it. What does that mean? that does studying advanced math really make you better at basketball not because you can use the quadratic equation to calculate in how many seconds will the ball hit the net that's not that's not what it does what it does is forcing your mind to think in different ways and to look at things in different ways makes you a generally more advanced person and that's part of what Rav and Fall Hirsch was trying to give over according to those opinions was that on the contrary the world has discovered all this knowledge and if you can bring it into your, uh, into your mind in a way, on the contrary, do it in a healthy way, do it in a proper way, study it in a systematic way, and you'll see. Now, on the other side, what we're not discussing also is a separate issue, which is the depravity of the culture in the world of education out there. In other words, what's happening on your typical college campus is dangerous for many more reasons than for anything which may be slipped into the education. As we know, that the college campus is typically a place where the moral standards are not necessarily the same moral standards as society at large. And also, at the same time, there's a culture and there's a very strong influence of people to think a certain way and to act in a certain way that's very difficult to overcome. We're not discussing that situation, the the situation of the college campus. We're, We're speaking theoretically in a vacuum. Let's say the University of Berlin in the year 1900, where even though obviously for their society it was very uh, it was depraved to a certain extent, but but um, you know compared to us we would, but still it was mostly about education. Well, maybe um, I, I shouldn't. I don't want to pick on specific colleges. You know propaganda was always propaganda. But but the, the idea that assuming we could separate. And we're only talking about the studies and the subjects that are being taught. Another issue to take into consideration, and I'm trying to put too many parts together here, is that the Torah itself also has these subjects. The Torah itself contains mathematics. In order for someone to study the Talmud, from one end of the Talmud to the next, you have to be able to do advanced calculations. If you can't do advanced calculations, then you cannot complete the Talmud. And it's shocking to a certain degree that there are, there are so many people who are battling against basic mathematics in, in certain schools, and it's because they're looking at it as some external influence when the fact is that the Torah itself has all this advanced um, mathematics and mathematics is just one example and there are other areas within the world of knowledge science uh, zoology the Talmud has pages and pages and pages on, on the nature and structure and the makeup of animals and, and, and so and it, it seems like a person should have knowledge of these things and not just from, from you know, the Talmud tells us the one of the rabbis, before he was allowed to give rulings on animals and their blemishes, he had to go work on a farm for 18 months so that he would know the animals. That's, that's actually going out there and studying. So then what's the problem? What is the problem? The problem is that the mathematics are not being taught from a Torah perspective. The, the, the mathematics are being presented as, as a package with secular knowledge, which... For many religious people, they said, why do we want this? I see someone, uh, someone added to the chat, absolutely, the law is also in the Talmud. Yeah, an analysis of law and the logic behind the law. Pages and pages. And you see sometimes when a lawyer uh, opens up the Talmud and begins to study it for the first time, he says, this is incredible, all these ideas that we're studying today, 2,000 years ago, this was already discussed and, and analyzed by the rabbis on such an intensely deep level. at the same time, at the same time you have another issue which is that one of the exiles one of the Arba Galiot was Galut Yavan and what was Galut Yavan? um, people always say Galut means when we are thrown out of Eretz Yisrael, that is a mistake It is wrong. It is not the interpretation of the word Galut. And that's why some people who try to look at the Jews who are currently in Eretz Israel as being um, redeemed and the Jews who are out of Eretz Israel as being BeGalut, that's wrong. Because you can be in Eretz Israel and in Galut. How do we know that? Because in Galut Yavan we were in Eretz Israel we were in Galut. What was the Galut? The Galut was we were thrown out of a state of living a Torah observant world, and we were forced to live by the way the Greeks wanted us to live. They prohibited Shabbat. They prohibited Brit Milah. Why did they prohibit Brit Milah? Why did they stop us from having a a Brit? Why do they care about such a small, minor ceremonial procedure? The answer is because they had a philosophy. Their philosophy was the worship of the human body. That your body is a temple and needs to be treated with respect and you can't blemish or cause harm to the body in any way. And so the Brit Mila went against their beliefs and their cultures. So when they impose their belief and their cultures upon us, and therefore we were unable to live in the Torah way of living, then we call that a galut. So argue these rabbis. Think about it for a second, right? If you're if you're telling me that, then if you're enforcing me to study chachmat yevanit, just the new form of chachmat yevanit. So instead of learning Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, I- instead I'm going to be learning about Kant and Hegel and Schopenhauer. What's the difference? interesting argument, right? So, you're wanting me to study these things, then, then um, the, you're basically imposing on me what the Greeks tried to oppose on me. You know what we did when the Greeks tried to oppose, op- oppose us? We said, Mila Shem and we raised up our swords and shields, and we fought. We, it's so interesting, because it's like the battle of Hanukkah then becomes the representation of of the Chachmat HaTorah versus the Chachmat Yevanit. So, what's the response to that? What's the response to that? What is the difference between? I I I know I'm not I haven't been quoting names because I think it gets confusing when you quote names, but these are all the actual arguments that were being presented by the different people in this question of what should we do, do we study the secular studies or do we not? So what's the response to that? What's the difference between the secular studies today and the Chochmat Yevanit, which we all agree was so destructive that we call it Choshe Chalpenei Home? Right. also interesting is that we're looking at it from the perspective we're, we're after the fact right? they, they, this this debate has already been had and the system is the way that it is but when they were setting up the system this is the issue that they they that they were struggling with and related to this and I don't want to stick only to Eretz Yisrael because in the United States of America virtually, with a number of exceptions but virtually all the religious schools even the most religious schools, they all have the basic government required studies, and in all of your yeshivot, the boys will get um, technical. You know, they'll get uh, high school diplomas, which will. There are exceptions, and we're not discussing those exceptions. But but uh, they, they will have it. But if you ask them, they'll tell you it's because the government requires it. It says in the government that in order for you to teach Torah, you also have to teach these other things. Now, we could do like what Velazhin did and not do it, but we're not going to do that. So we're going to give these education. We're educations. But it's, it's, it's a compromise to a certain extent. Once you're doing it, you might as well do it properly, and you may as well give people skills that they can actually use for life. And so some schools take it more seriously, and some schools take it less seriously. But essentially, they're not considering it part of who you are. And this comes down to an interesting teaching that goes back to Rabbi Alchanan Wasserman, the Rosh Hashiva of Baranovich, I know I wouldn't quote names, but in this case I will, who said like this, who said, if you study Torah, you know everything. Not only do you know everything from the Torah, but everything you know is true. Because, asher natan lanu Torah emet, the Torah is true. That is why the story is told, I always quote the same story, but I think it's the best example, of a man who came to the Chazonish and said to him he wanted a bracha because he was going to have the surgery and the doctors were going to be removing his eye because in order to reach the place they had to. And the Chazonish said to him, well, you know, what's the issue, what's the this? And the Chazonish took the Chazonish, Rav Ram Yeshai Karelitz, who, who, who passed away in the 20th century took a, a napkin and wrote a little map on how to do the surgery without going through the eye. And he gave it to this man, the man went to the doctor and said to the doctor, this is what my rabbi said, he said, you went for a second opinion, this is, he said, no, no, this is my rabbi. He's like, no, no, no rabbi did this. No rabbi wrote you a map on how to get to the brain without going through the eye, that part of the brain. And apparently the story is told that this doctor became a religious Jew afterwards because the Chazanish didn't have a medical degree but he knew the Torah inside out and in the Torah comes wisdom from God. And so he had knowledge of this. And I'm just using the, the Chazanisha as an example, but there have been so many stories of rabbis through their pure knowledge of Torah had advanced advanced knowledge of science to the point where world experts who were coming to the rabbis for information about, I use the example of Shlomo Zaman Orbach for hydroponics, Hydroponics, how to grow things things in water, it's discussed in the Talmud, and there's so much information in the Talmud, that he was able to tell you how to do it properly in a way that works, and it worked. And and ethics and morals and all these other areas that are clear and they still exist, and, and they're relevant even today. So, and there are, th- th- this knowledge exists, and therefore, said Al Khan and Vaserman, you could know everything from the Torah. So as soon as you read one book outside of the Torah, you've now f- ruined your perfect knowledge of the Torah with other information. That's going to take you away from the truth. And he felt like a secular education was a way of diluting what would be pure and true knowledge with other stuff. What's the response to that? So the response to that coming from the other side is that, and this is what it comes down to, the answer that the Talmud says, how could Rabbi Meir learn from Acher? How could Rebbe Meir learn from Acher? And this is the answer in my opinion, everyone's welcome to disagree, but in my opinion this is the answer. How could Rabbi Meir learn from Acher? Says the Talmud, Rabbi Meir, rimon Matzah, um, tocho achal klipo zarak. that means that Rabbi Meir found a rimon, he found the pomegranate and he knew how to peel he knew how to peel off the layers and say this, are, this is this stuff and here's the good stuff and he was able to eat the fruit and what's required, again my opinion uh, I'm not the first one to make this suggestion but you know, this kind of balanced approach is that the answer to all of these questions is you cannot have what's happened in many, many orthodox societies where they have given primacy as if science and history and social studies those, that they have the truth and now we have to figure out how the Torah is going to fit in with what's the truth that person is already off according to Rabal Khan and Wasserman that person has lost all their das Torah Because you're assuming that the human mind is capable of grasping true knowledge. And so funny, it's funny, and I say funny, not in I mean hilarious, that human beings today believe they've got it figured out. And human beings 20 years ago believed that they've got it figured out. And 100 years before that, that they haven't figured out. And 1,000 years before that, they haven't figured out. At what point does humanity wake up and say, hey, maybe we don't. And it's amazing what they believed. Aristotle believed that all things move downward, that heavy things will fall faster than, than lighter things. And they believed that the, the sun revolves around the earth, as do all the planets in the way that... And then they realized it's not like that. There are, um, there are this many elements that the physical world is made up. People... We're learning new things, and they kind of laughed at the previous generation, but laughing in a way where they're so confident that we know everything. And in a hundred years from now, society would look at our society and say, what a bunch of buffoons. And the question is why we don't look at ourselves and say, what a bunch of buffoons. So what it comes down to is for a person who understands the Torah as being the Torah of the Jewish people, this is our knowledge, this is our understanding. There's no reason why anything has to contradict it. There's out there this chachma Bagoyim Tamin, as we said before. Why not have that wisdom? The issue only becomes when your chachma in your mind clashes against your Torah. When, when, you, when you face a struggle... Where you have to, but if you can filter, if you can figure out what's the klipa and what's the peri, what's the fruit, if you can understand. And the problem is, it's a serious problem. Is that it's very hard to do that today. It's always been hard, but it gets harder with each generation as the knowledge of the world advances and as the society becomes more and more against religion, against. Spirituality against people looking for deeper meanings within the world, and the world becomes more about indulgence and how can I have more and how can I do more? How can I have more fun? How can my life become more exciting? Rather than I mean, think about this. I, I I'm gonna I, I know I'm running out of time, but I think this is an important question. If you went to your average teenager, maybe I'm wrong, in the in the, in the 19th century, and I'll say into the, uh, even through the 20th century, if you gave them a book let's say an almanac, with all the knowledge, your av- your typical intellectual child will read it cover to cover. Today you have online all the knowledge in the world. All the knowledge in the world. In fact you have so much knowledge available to every person at their fingertips that it's more knowledge than any human being can ever put together. That more than anyone could ever read. More than anyone could ever analyze. Wouldn't you expect that our children today should be the most intelligent, advanced generation in the history of the world? Just Wikipedia! Wikipedia! I know, not everything on Wikipedia is true. But, but, um, but just Wikipedia. Shouldn't the kids just spend all day reading Wikipedia articles? And there are. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IVT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.